indescribable gift. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open once again, one final time for now, to the book of Micah, we're in chapter 7. This is the last sermon that we will look at uh, this verse, this chapter, this book. Um, And while you're turning there, I want to, man, I must have been over singing. I'll do my best. You guys listen well. I'll try to speak well. Um, But as you're turning there, one of the things that, um, when you think about it, there are a lot of things that we try to put our hope in. There are a lot of things that we try to look forward to that we think, oh, life will just be better when this happens. And maybe it's a new, uh, new election that's going to happen. We think, oh, things will just get better if only this. Maybe it's, maybe it's a new season at school and you realize life will just get gooder. I know that's not the way you should use it, but life will get gooder when school is done. And then about three weeks in, students, aren't you bored out of your minds? Why can't I have school again? Life will be better when school is back in session. Or we think about that next job or that next promotion. Or we think it'll just be better if financially I can be a little bit better. I hope for that day. Or maybe it's when we think... We hope for something to be different when our bodies change. Maybe it's losing weight. Maybe it's gaining weight. Maybe it's just better health or better prognosis on something that we're dealing with. Hope is something that we all look forward to, and yet sometimes those things in which we hope are not the things that can actually accomplish the things that we hope will happen. There can be positive and even godly outcomes in all of these things, jobs, positions, financial standings, political changes, school changes. But there is ultimately only one source that can provide lasting change and relief in the midst of dark and difficult circumstances. And last week, as we were studying the book of Micah, we read his lament. We read that those few verses when Micah was together. I've got one. Thanks, Jeremiah. I've got one here. We read those few verses when when Micah just cried out to God. You can almost imagine him being on his knees and saying, my God, how long? When will you do this? And yet Micah, as if you remember last week, he concluded his lament with this verse of hope, this refrain of hope in verse 7, where he says, but as for me, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Micah closes out the rest of his book with the reason for his hope, and that's really what we're looking at today. His hope, you see, is not established on wishful thinking or naive sentiments. His hope is founded on two things that the Lord is, and those two things kind of bracket two things that the Lord does. In other words, Micah's hope is established firmly on God's character and on God's conduct. And we're going to see those manifested in four different ways today. So if you want to take notes, if you want to fill in blanks, we're going to begin by looking at his character and the, and the fact that the Lord, one aspect of his character is that the Lord is light. 
the Lord is light. Micah seems to know that he is in dark and difficult times. And the condition of his nation has left him in despair. If you remember, his nation had been rebellious and they'd done all the things that God told them not to do. And so as a result, God was going to bring in foreign powers to come and conquer them and take them away. And yet he also recognizes that he is in some ways complicit. He knows that he is part of that nation and his own sin has played a role in in the judgment that God brings, and yet he is not without hope. In fact, look at what it says in verses 8 to 10. This is the New Living Translation. It's a little different than the one that I usually use, but Micah writes, Do not gloat over me, my enemies, for though I fall, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I will be patient as the Lord punishes me, for I have sinned against him. But after that, He will take up my case and give me justice for all that I have suffered for my enemies. The Lord will bring me into the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemies will see that the Lord is on my side and they will be ashamed that they taunted me saying, so where is the Lord, that God of yours? With my own eyes, I will see their downfall. They will be trampled like mud in the streets. And it seems like there are two things that God's characteristic of light is doing in these verses. And the first is this, is that God's light is revealing sin. We see that in verses 8 and 9. You see, sin has a way of crippling us. It makes us want to hold back, to hide, to cover up, to not be seen, to sit in darkness. And that secrecy, when it's uncovered by our enemies, gets mired in shame, which is why Micah goes to them and says, don't gloat over me. Don't be excited about my own sinfulness. Yes, I am sinful, but don't be proud about that foreign nation. You see, our enemies want to to exploit those sinful things that we will do because of our human nature. And yet when God shines the light of his holiness on our lives, it's not to shame us. It's not to say, hey, look, there's a sinner. Everybody come make fun of that person. There, are, there is natural shame. When our sin is, is found out, there is that humiliation. When, some, when, when, when our sin gets found out by others, there is. There are consequences. After all, in our sin, we have failed, we have fallen, and we have transgressed. But when God shines the light of his holiness on our sin, it is to restore us. It's to reveal that sin in us so that we can repent of it. It's to bring healing to us. God brings us into the light. I'm sorry, God brings into the light that which we want to keep hidden that which we want to keep in the dark, he roots it out so that it won't kill us. And I think David understood the profound ramifications of sin and the healing character of God when he wrote in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. You see, God's convicting light can often feel like a heavy hand. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but when we've got unconfessed sin in our lives, when there's something we're holding on to, something we're trying to keep covered up, and God has that way of saying, here, will you repent of this? They, they, his hand is heavy. His light is piercing. It is painful. It's almost like we can feel our bodies wasting away from within, as, as David described. And yet until that sin is confessed to the Lord, until that sin is addressed in our lives, God hand will, God's hand will feel heavy upon us. And yet Micah speaks from the freedom and the relief of confession. He speaks from the freedom and relief that come with forgiveness from God. But I think in, in addition to seeing the revealing quality of the light in the Lord, Micah notices the fact that God's light, in God's light, he is restoring honor. We see this in verse 10. In other words, he's overcoming shame. Micah recognizes that this healing and revealing aspect of God's light will turn the shameful taunts of his enemies back on them when they see the ways that God can restore honor. Over the last couple of weeks, this theme has come up for a variety of reasons between Danielle and me. And there have been several podcasts that she's been listening to that I think have been very helpful to me as I think through this. Podcasts where, that, that Danielle has shared with me where people talk about both the revealing light of God's conviction, but also the restoring work of his forgiveness. Now, let me give you two brief scenarios. You see, first of all, God's light is seen in community. When we're mired in sin... And maybe it's an addiction of some sort. Maybe it's an addiction to alcohol or, or drugs or pornography or games or social media likes or the approval of others or news. Or maybe it's an addiction to work. In our own desire to hide our shame and our addiction, we also hide our sin. We keep it from others and we might even pull back and remove ourselves from some aspect of fellowship, saying, ah, let me keep you at arm's, arm's length. But when God's revealing light breaks in and the heavy hand of the Holy Spirit's conviction becomes unbearable, the response that God has designed is confession. First of all, confession to him. But there's a second way that I think confession comes, becomes necessary and helpful, and that is in confession to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. And sure, that can be painful and that can be embarrassing. But there will be healing. You see, acting as an agent of God's light, this brother or sister can work toward lifting us out of the dark, turning on the light, pulling us out of the shame, pulling us out of despair. Community has a way of pushing back darkness. So I guess the first question is, are you finding yourself tempted to withdraw 
from contact with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you need to be aware that engaging will be more helpful than withdrawing. But secondly, we see God's light in restoring honor. In one of those podcasts that Danielle shared with me included an interview with a woman named Kate. And from the time Kate was about 14 years old, she was very sexually active. She found her identity wrapped up in all these many different people, many different men that she had slept with. In some ways, she didn't know any better. She thought that's just how life would be. In fact, that's what our culture, isn't that what our culture is saying to all of us? Do whatever you want. Sleep with whoever you want. And so she was engaging that fully only to find that she was empty and in despair. She finally met a man that she thought was the one. She finally met a guy that might stay with her for more than one night, that guy that might be with her forever. But as he uncovered her shame, he was not a believer. As he uncovered her shame, he's like, no. All he could see was her the shame of her past. All he could see was her sin. He said, I don't want any part of that. And it wasn't until she stepped back and began to, <clears throat> began to see herself the way that God had created her, not as an object of pleasure, not as an object to be used, and unfortunately even abused by other people, but an object, an image bearer of God. She began to be healed and be restored. Her shame, her shame-filled past was being renewed. And after a, after a period of time where God, by his Holy Spirit and God through his word, and at a time when she began to just be the woman that God had called her to be, God was bringing healing to her. And as she shared God's healing, God brought a man into her life who, who, who understood her shame and could see that that was not her, that she was now identified. She was fully identified as a woman of God. And so they worked together in their dating relationship to overcome their past shame, and they remained pure in their dating relationship. And now they're married and they're encouraging other people to see who God made them to be and enjoying and why enjoying sex inside of marriage is God's good design. For Kate and her husband, the shame of the past, their shame is past and their, and their honor is restored because of the light of God's love. So I want to encourage you, if you're struggling, if you're mired in a darkened cave of shameful loneliness, step into the light of God's community, his forgiveness, his love. Confess your sin to the Lord. Consider confessing your sin to a, a brother or sister in Christ who can walk with you, who can encourage you, who can help you get toward healing. You see, Jesus took our shame on himself on the cross, and there is no reason why we should keep holding on to that. And this is one of the reasons why we as, as an elder team are, are looking to lead us to start community groups in the fall. 
small groups of fellowship where we can spend time together studying the word, praying together, worshiping, and having time to confess sin to one another, encourage one another, help, other, help each other walk toward holiness. And over the next couple of months, we'll be discussing a little bit more about that. But back to Micah. Micah, he, he finds hope in the revealing light of God's character. He also finds hope in God's conduct, the fact that the Lord will cause the remnant to flourish. As we've seen over the last couple of months in looking at Micah, the people of Israel and Judah had not lived up to the expectations that God had placed on them. And while it has seemed like the entire society had become so corrupt that there was no hope of redemption, Micah seems to know that there is a remnant. There are people who still believe, who still walk in faith, who still walk as God's people. And basically, we come to this truth that there will always be a remnant of God's true people. And God will cause them to flourish, even in godless lands. Look at verses 11 to 13. He sees in the future, he says, a day for building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the, and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. And the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. And there's a lot of imagery going on, and, and I kind of pulled this apart from the next section, but Micah sees a day when the walls that have been torn down will be built back up, and the boundaries that had receded will be extended, and not only extended, they will be far extended. And there seems to be a picture of the whole earth being desolate and yet coming to the remnant, to the restored people of Israel. David Pryor, one of the commentaries I commentators I looked at, makes an interesting connection between this passage and, and a little reference in the next section that we'll look at. But he says this, he says, if we link the references to Carmel, Bashan, and Gilead, which we'll see in verse 14, with the vision of Jerusalem extending its boundaries in verse 11, we have this thrilling scenario. And now, now get this, look at this. He says, the whole territory will be contained within the rebuilt walls of the new Jerusalem. Which means that it is geographically impossible, but theologically powerful. This also corresponds to the perfection, the beauty, and the fruitfulness of the holy city, which John saw coming down out of heaven at the end of the book of Revelation. So, so get this. If Jerusalem represents the city of God, now, this, now the walls of the city are so far extended that it encompasses all these surrounding nations. But Jerusalem is in one physical place. And you know, what, he, what Micah seems to see there is that this remnant, all these people who are out there are making such a difference that the people of God, it, it's as though the walls of Jerusalem are extended into other nations. Some time ago, I was listening to some sermons from, from Tim Keller that he did on the, on the book of Habakkuk. And he noted that one of the challenges of, of reading and studying prophecy is that it's so much doom and gloom. You read all these prophets and you think, oh, will they just get it? Will the people just repent and fix their lives and come back to the way that God wanted them? God, are you so angry all the time? 
And yet one of the things that, that Keller pointed out from, from the book of Habakkuk, is he said that, that as these foreign nations came in and acted as God's disciplining hand and punishing hand on, the, on his people, they were spread out. He says one of the things that you can do is looking throughout history, you see that as God's people were moved from Israel and Judah, from Jerusalem, and put in these other lands, you see them making a difference in those murderous and thieving cultures. You see, they may not have, not all of them came back to the city. Not all of them came back to land. Some of them were told to stay there. Many of them had to remain. And yet, because they were there, they returned to the Lord, even if they didn't return to the promised land. But because they were faithful there, they began to have an impact in the lives of people around them. And the culture out here was beginning to look like the culture that should have been back here. Jeremiah encouraged the exiles to have a positive impact in the foreign lands. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The remnant was intended to make a difference, make an impact in those cultures. And even in our day, we get the joy of living as God's people in an increasingly godless land. We get to act with love and grace and mercy. We get to pray for the welfare of the cities that we inhabit, of Poolsville, of Dickerson, of Boyd, of Frederick, of Rockville, of Germantown, and beyond. And I think this also means that we get to engage in godly work at all levels of society. And I think we should be praying that Christians would enter into government, true Christians, not just people who are conveniently Christians so they can get elected, but true believers enter into government to run for the board of education, to become judges and professors and, and physicians and scientists and more. And I think we, as God's people in those places, should be there not to impose God's ways, but to advocate for them, to communicate the wisdom of God and what he has called, what he intended for his society to have, to help people see that the vitriolic backbiting of our age doesn't need to be the way forward, that there is a better way. There is a flourishing way, and that way is God's. So Micah's hope is rooted in the light-revealing character of God and in his flourishing activity. And we get in the next section, we get to see another action of God in the lives of his people, and that is his conduct as the shepherd who will shepherd his people with justice. And we've seen over the course of Micah's book how he called the leaders shepherds of God's flock. And now Micah observes that the Lord will be the shepherd. And rather than shepherding with favoritism and corruption 
as God's leaders, as the people of Israel had done, the leaders in that nation has done, God will shepherd his people with justice. Look at verse 14. It's as though he's calling out and he says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you, when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations will see and be ashamed of their might, and they shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth, and they shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. The injustice of human shepherds will be replaced with the just guarding of God. And what's more, God's righteousness will be so marvelously displayed against the feeble rebellion of the godless nations. And just as we saw in Michael, Micah chapter 4, as the people come to the mountain of God to learn, to grow, to be like what God intended to learn God's ways, one day all nations will see that, the Lord, that God alone is worthy of praise and reverence. May, may, that be, may that day be soon. Lord, let that day be seen in us. But finally, Micah finds his hope in one final character quality, and that is that the Lord is incomparable. He is incomparable. For Micah, this hits close to home because his name means who is like the Lord. Micah recognizes a couple of profound truths that reveal just how incomparable God is. First of all, though he is just, he is also forgiving. In the passage that Tyler read earlier, Micah says, who, who is a God like you, pardoning, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his, of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. When the people of Israel were surrounding Mount Sinai, this is after God had led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They were now in the wilderness. They were being formed as God's people. God introduced himself to Moses in the way that we had our call to worship in, in Exodus 34 when he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We like to hear that part. Oh, yes, God, I need you to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding as I need you that way. And yet we also see a God, as it says in the next part, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We think, God, I thought you were merciful. I thought you were gracious. How can you be that way too? You see, in his just standard, God treats sin for what it is. And yet in his steadfast love and mercy and grace, he forgives iniquity. And yet how can the two coexist together? And I think we see that most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus laid aside the glory of eternity and took on human flesh, he became like us. He identified with our humanity and our temptation to fall into sin, and yet he lived perfectly. And when he died, he took our sin on him. He took God's just judgment that was intended for us on himself. He bore our shame. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And consider Romans 3.22-26, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do at this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. He makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want you to understand that God's justice will be meted out. The Bible says the wages or the reward of our sin is death. Sin deserves death. It's either our death, which results in eternal separation from God, or through Jesus Christ, Jesus' death, which results in a purpose-filled life here and eternal life with God. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, in his death, then we receive God's eternal forgiveness, his justice. And so I want to encourage you, if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, may it be today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's appointed for man once to die and after that the judgment. Either you'll go before the judge on your own, or if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll go before him with an advocate who says, no, that one's mine. That one's mine. And I hope that he is your advocate. Micah not only sees God's incomparable nature and his justice and forgiveness, but he understands that though we are faithless, God is faithful. We observed how the people of Israel and Judah were rebellious against God. And even though God is bringing discipline to his people, he remains faithful to keep his promises to them. Look at verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You see, God made promises to both Abraham and Jacob hundreds of years before Micah comes on the scene. He had promised them land. He had promised that they would be a people. He had promised that they would be a blessing to all nations. And God has a way of being able to fulfill his promises in spite of the faithlessness of his people. 
And beloved, know and understand that even in our failings, even when we fall, even when we are faithless to him, he remains faithful. Faithful to his promises toward us. His hesed or his steadfast love will not let us go. Our world and our society, just like Micah's, is filled with faithlessness. People are leaving one another all the time. They leave relationships. They leave agreements. They leave churches. They leave families. They leave so much more. There is faithfulness rampant in our, faithlessness rampant in our society. And yet God is faithful. There's an old hymn writer, a preacher named George Matheson who lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And in 1882, on the eve of his sister's wedding, he recorded in his journal that he was facing intense mental suffering. He never denoted what that was. But there are a few things that we know from his life. Matheson was blind. And a few weeks or months, a little while before his sister's wedding, his fiance came to him and said, I'm not going to be the wife of a blind preacher. You're on your own. And now, potentially seeing the fact that his, his caregiver, his sister, was now being married, he was feeling as though he was left all alone. And he said it was in that night when he was having this, this mental suffering that he was inspired to write in a flurry of words a hymn. He said, it took me all of about five minutes to write this entire hymn. And here's the first verse of that hymn. Oh, love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul on thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer and fuller be. See, in the midst of his anguish, Matheson was reminded of God's faithful love. We've seen that Micah had reasons to hope for the future because of God's character and his conduct, and I think so can we. So can we. God's light may reveal sin, but it also restores our restores us from our shame. God's blessing conduct will cause his remnant to flourish even in godless lands. God's shepherding conduct will guide and protect his people. And God's incomparable nature reveals his justice and his forgiveness and his faithfulness, even when we are sinful and faithless. May we continue to hope with the same hope that Micah had because Micah's hope was in God alone. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much.